I knew intuitively that the relative experience of reality wasn't separate from the absolute. And yet I longed for a pathway of sorts that could allow me to articulate how that is so. How is it not separate? Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. So, hi everyone. This is Ethan McTurn for the Road Home Podcast. Um, want to welcome back to the podcast uh, and much earlier guest on the podcast, um, my friend, teacher, Caverly Morgan. And we're here celebrating uh, the release of Caverly's book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together, um, which is just out from Sounds True. So, Caverly, uh, Welcome from Brooklyn to Portland, where, you know, the, it's basically the same place, just three hour time difference. Ethan, thank you so much. I feel really joyous in this moment to be connecting with you again. Um, It's really great to be with you. So, you know, don't have to have you have too much of your origin story, but from the standpoint that I like to come from of um, being sort of viewing all these teachings of mindfulness, dharma, compassion, et cetera, as, you know, a, a path for being in fully immersed in the 21st century world. You know, the two extremes of that, of being sort of a retreatant or, you know, yogi or a monastic, and then sort of being in the world. You're you're one of my friends, colleagues in this space, who I would say have have really felt you know, the extremes of that. Um, so I'm just wondering, can you talk about, just kind of revisit your time as a as a monastic practitioner and then kind of re-entry into the world for us, just to set the stage for your path into how you're teaching? Absolutely. I mean, I have to chuckle because it's like, gosh, how do you sum up 12, 15, 16 years of um a journey that I sometimes struggle to find words for. Like, how how do I describe what it's like to go from living in a hermitage that's made of plywood with one light bulb that's powered by a solar-powered battery, an outhouse, um, in a in a field that if I had screamed, no one would have heard me, to now running a nonprofit that... Um, brings mindfulness into the Portland public school system and beyond. It's, it's my, I think the word that you use that encapsulates it the best is extremes. And that's uh, definitely part of my perhaps karmic bent is to explore the edges of experience. And for me, the the type of monast monastery I ended up being in was an extreme one. I mean, it was silent unless we were in conversation with our teacher. And as you know, Ethan, I was there just over eight years. So it was a lot of 
um, serious focus. And coming out of the monastery, I had a lot of serious focus on what it meant to live in this relative plane reality and apply my practice to that experience. And I was still committed to exploring edges. So I wanted to know what it would feel like to, for example, um, explore my my internal sense of what it meant to be, to identify as being a woman. Mm. And uh, I remember buying dresses and makeup and taking salsa classes. And, you know, whereas at the monastery, I shaved my head. I explored what was beyond my conditioned definition of gender um, and sexuality. So I think the best way to sum up the journey is that I've always been someone who's learned through direct experience. And I wanted to know practice as fully as I could know practice within the context that I was exposed to. And that led me to being a monastic for as long as I was. And then upon leaving, I have been in a somewhat burning query around what is, what does it mean to bring practice through every day experience, especially in times like the times we're in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like this, I don't want to say this notion of extremes, but, but this interplay between, um, relative and ultimate truth, as we would put it is, is really kind of central to the view of your book, the heart of who we are. So I'm just wondering, because different Buddhist teachers define relative and ultimate truth in, in different ways. How would you, if you had your shot to do like a two-minute Dharma talk on uh, relative and ultimate truth, which might be unfair because they're not really digestible that way, but how, how would you how would you define that? And how did that set up the interplay? Would you agree that that's a huge part of the interplay of of your book? And how would you define that in a way to set up your approach to this book? Thank you, Ethan. I would absolutely say that the heart of this book is that interplay. I really appreciate that the non-dual meditation teacher, Rupert Spira, um, when endorsing the book, said um, something to the effect of, transformation and transcendence. Um, and, you know, what was significant to me about that was um, that for me, reconciling what has been presented to me as two separate realities has been at the the heart of my practice, and as you mentioned, therefore the heart of this book. So when I speak about the absolute, I'm speaking about what's unchanging. I'm speaking about what Zen master Banke might have referred to as, uh, or what he did refer to as the unborn mind. When I'm speaking about the absolute, 
I'm speaking about pure consciousness. When I'm speaking about the relative, I'm speaking about all that's appearing on the plane of reality in which you and I are just chatting and catching up a bit before we start this recording. I'm speaking about um, all that's appearing within this absolute experience. I'm speaking about that which changes, that which comes and goes, that which is born and dies. So I knew the direct, I, I had a direct experience of the absolute as early on as the beginning, actually before I even became a monastic, just Zen, just intensive Zen retreats. And I didn't feel as though I had a pathway for this reconciliation of the absolute and the relative. I didn't feel that I, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that I didn't know how to reconcile that, you know, I'm saying that I have this life committed to not harming, and yet I'm looking around completely aware, having left the monastery, of all the ways I participate in harm, specifically within the systems that are created within our conditioned world. So this question about the, I knew intuitively that the relative experience of reality wasn't separate from the absolute. And yet I longed for, I longed for a a pathway of sorts that could allow me to articulate how that is so. How is it not separate? Because it can seem so separate. So so that's one interplay. The the other related interplay that that um guides us and also guides a lot of the sort of more practice-based contemplations at the end of each chapter are is the relationship between the personal level of our experience, the personal level of our path awakening or path of, you know, mindfulness or development and the collective, right? Or the, the group experience. So um, it's, this is kind of an interesting um, dynamic that's going on in, in the entire kind of mindfulness space is, is this a personal practice or is this, you know, a, a social practice, you know. Well, Ethan, I think one of the reasons it's such a joy for me to get to speak with you is I know we have a shared passion for exploring in our own practice and therefore sharing with others the way in which these two cannot be separated. That there is no, that it's a, in the same way that the conditioned mind creates a story that the absolute and the relative are two separate um, realities, if you will. We've created a conditioned society in which personal practice is seen as separate from collective practice. And I didn't, I didn't just have an insight about that one day. I left the monastery and looked around and realized this is nuts that within this context of training, there was never any discussion of how to take these deep, rich tools that I was learning and apply them beyond my 
personal life. Right. It, it does seem that we're kind of, you know, I mean, the retreat environment is is definitely one, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. of Silence is an interesting question altogether because obviously it's so profound. But it's also not, I mean, you can share a silent uh, experience with a lot of people. Those are sometimes because they're so um, uh, intuitive and, and so rare, you know, when groups of people can actually be silent together that's that's very powerful but it's not it's not the way we understand each other right so even in privileging silence over say communication right there there's kind of a ch- choice of the personal being greater than the um collective right or more important than the collective but then you enter this space where there's a, the world where there's very little and and decreasing probably since you've left in terms of technology and culture uh, opportunities for silence, unless you really force them, you know, into your practices and and so forth. So was that a jarring transition for you? It it was definitely a jarring transition. It definitely showed me the shadow side of having that much focus on silence. It surprisingly, and I say surprisingly because I I agree with you what you're saying about um, communication, being in communication in community in a specific way. And what was also revealed was a deep intimacy with others that is very, uh, yet another place that's very hard to put words to now. That, you know, the really the intimacy of simply being with other humans, like my fellow monks, day in, day out, is is an intimacy that, as I look around in our noisy, conditioned world, um, many people don't have the luxury to know or experience because our attention is so fully directed on the content of our lives. Our attention is is not resting back habitually into an experience of shared being, our attention is being directed outward to various objects. So what we think about other people or what we project onto other people. Um, So that's to be named as well. But this is yet another place that presents itself as dualistic. You know, this sort of silence versus the noisy world. And what I'm most lit up uh, about in my own practice and in my own life these days is that reconciliation as well. So what is the silent backdrop out of which everything's arising? And what does it mean to rest in, know, and move through the world from that silence, even in the midst of a noisy world. We have this idea that we can't experience silence until we, as you said, like force it, carve it out, make it happen. And, and it's, it can be a very constructed experience that again is in opposition to a noisy world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wondered, do you find, you know, I've, I've been thinking recently, like just, for a long time, I thought social media was 
um, kind of what we would call in the tantric path co-emergent, you know, meaning that it, uh, de- depending on what mind state you enter it with and how much clarity you enter it with and non-fixation, it can be either wisdom or confusion. But I've really come to feel that it's kind of designed structurally for confusion more and more. I mean, I still enter the fray for for some personal or informational reasons, but um, I feel like I've gotten a little more pessimistic about the the uh, systems of the world, just in terms, just tech, especially technological systems. Uh, I'll probably recover and and shift my view on this because I often do, but. Um, do you find that the, does the noisy world, um, have benefits for you? Do you, do you ever like enjoy the immersion in the noisy world culturally or, you know, the, the, the erratic behaviors of it or the distractions of it? Well, one thing that I appreciate about the noisy world is how much it supports my own practice regarding my commitment to find what's underneath the noisy world, what's, what's true. So finding, for example, the absolute within the relative is another way I could say it based on our conversation so far. So as you know, I've spent a lot of time in high schools, um, through our program, peace in schools, and they're they're not noisy at all, right? (laughs) Not only (laughs) is there tons of noise, but there's noise there's noise on so many layers. There's there's the noise of personal conditioning. There's noise of the collective conditioning. There's the noise of the social media. There's the noise that they're that teens are creating as they um, re- as they get through their own reconciliation with like who am I and what's happening with this world and is the world gonna even survive? Um, and there's been a real beauty for me in the commitment to find what's true within that. And I don't, I don't, I think that's important because I don't think it's going anywhere. I really, I really, I think these mechanisms of and I agree with you, the cynicism comes from the recognition that the, that most of what we're seeing are manifestations of our collective conditioning. And that's what's creating all of this noise. So we see um, we see actions on behalf of a collective ego rather than actions that are on behalf of the heart of who we are, for example. And and that's that's an important part of my book is exploring the importance of holding this perspective of it's not what, it's how through our practices. So I think it's important not to simply write off something like social media, but bring deep attention to the how. What, you know, uh, is what I'm putting out into the world something that's on behalf of the recognition of my true nature? Or is what I'm putting out into the world something that is on behalf of personal ego, collective ego. And I don't think there's always, uh, I don't think that's always a dualistic answer. I don't mean to present it as a dualistic question, but I think it's important inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other part of collective conditioning is when we realize that the 
harm that it can cause. You you told a, a personal familial a per, familial story of um, shame, you know, in in your book. So shame, especially for practitioners, I find is um, you know is is such an important um, aspect of of the discussion of being a, a modern practitioner with some level of, of privilege. And it's interesting because classic Buddhism actually uh, it's interesting, like in the Indo-Tibetan system, shame is actually considered a positive quality of mind. Uh, I didn't know that. Shame and Yeah. This is interesting in the Abhidharma teaching. So virtuous qualities of mind. And I think this is partially very Asian, but I also think it's coming from a worldview of a practitioner who regards oneself highly and positively. So the definition of shame, maybe shame is not the best translation, but I'm not a good enough translator to know what is. Uh, the definition of shame is by um, by uh, avoiding degraded activity. You know, you hold yourself to a higher standard, so you avoid degrading your behavior. You avoid degrading your behavior, so you act in accord with the Dharma. You you act the way an awakened, compassionate person would act. Right. And embarrassment is other oriented. So it's because you care what otherwise people mm-hmm. think of you, you have they they hold you accountable to uplifted, awakened behavior. So it's the whole thing is coming from this perspective of like you're basically good, now act like you believe it, you know, sort of which is not the cult, not the collective conditioning of this culture. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about? Your oh, sure. I mean, it's very, or... yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the context I have for it is, is how helpful it's been to have mentors, spiritual mentors through my own um, practice who have held me lovingly accountable, who, and this, this goes from um, when I first was writing the book and I shared draft one to beloved BIPOC community and got really very clear and uh, in one case, like harsh feedback, like a real reality check. But it but it wasn't I think there's something in what you're saying or something that's lighting up for me around, you know, it wasn't feedback that said you should be ashamed, but it. It, it there's something important about this kind of uh, l- sense of loving accountability. I know that you're not living up to what you're trying to do here. And here's where here's where you're getting here's where you're getting stuck. So I do wonder how much of it is a language thing. Perhaps we we have this sort of blanket view of shame, but perhaps we really need to be using think words or phrases like loving accountability, um, holding, we did a training recently for our staff with Peace in Schools that talked about the importance of holding youth, holding high standards for, for youth, right? Like not walking in and just saying, oh, we're mindfulness teachers. So the compassionate thing to do is, is basically just let every, you know, be warm and fuzzy all the time, you know, be, um, be, be sort of, I'm soft about uh, cell phones being out during a class because, you know, you want to honor their experience. 
I'm putting on my Portland hippie voice. Is it working? You want to honor their experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, the big difference between Brooklyn and Portland here. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is where the cultural difference comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's trying to honor anyone's experience in Brooklyn. <laughs> but does that speak to, yeah, what yeah, was kind of yeah, lighting no, up for you about like shame and... Yeah, I mean... But the the negative shame, like, you know, you quote Brene Brown and you have your own family story there, seems more related to like the bad, there's a me that's bad, it's going to stay bad. It's not like, it's not like, come on, you know, you can do better, right? Yeah, I, the, I, the, the shame I'm talking about in the book is how debilitating it is. And this is something, I mean, I'd say the most common in working with other students, people, I'd say the most common block I see is whatever I do isn't enough. Mm -hmm. So there's this, we're, we're so conditioned to come from lack and a mind of scarcity and um, shame's part of that whole package. I'm not enough. Life's not enough. I'm not okay. Life's not okay. Uh, the shame I'm talking about in the book in that particular section is, is, is the shame of that conditioned limited view which is linked with self-hate. And then when you look at the relative plane and manifestations of behavior, you know, self-harm, suicidal ideation, you know, that, that manifestation of um, I am other than, I am, I am separate is, is the, I'm, I'm speaking about that, the way the shame's relationship yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. So what do you do about that that shame? I mean, because it seems like people of relative privilege um, in regard to their privilege are the ones who need to become the most accountable. And it does, to me, again, spiritually, this the, the, the political forces in the entire world, uh, you know, seem to be based spiritually and psychologically around this, right? That people of privilege are either being told sometimes unskillfully, Hey, come on folks, like make yourselves more account. Like you're not bad people, but make yourselves more accountable. Um, and versus this kind of counter, like sort of, you know, regressive movement, which is very alluring. It's, it's amazing how alluring it is, which is like, you don't have to make yourself accountable to anything you know, and all of this work is silly, is useless, and it's just liberals trying, you know, or spiritual, liberal spiritual teachers trying yeah. to tell you that you're bad, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it seems like working with that negative shame and having and developing some actual positive accountability is, um, is our work. It just, it just feels like it's, to me, that the, the dilemma feels like, the counter movement is very alluring, you know, um, it's to just be like, oh, no, you don't have to work on anything. <laughs> um, we were fine as we were. Right. America was great. Just make that happen again. Um, and the other movement is like eh, sometimes you get yelled at by people who don't know how to talk to other people, you know, <laughs> but their intentions are good and their intentions are actually moving in a slightly more awakened and compassionate direction. So. Um, yeah, I mean, how do spiritual teachers hold that kind of middle ground of like loving communication, but 
come on, put your cell phone away and meditate, you know, come on, acknowledge your privilege, come on, acknowledge these systems, you know? Well, first, Ethan, I think you're hitting it on the head in in my direct experience as well, Um, meaning I resonate with everything you're saying so fully. So first, it seems so clear to me that we have to get shame off the table. Like we can't, we can't grow, we can't, evolve with shame being that which is binding us and therefore um, like a dam in the conversation of our human evolution of human consciousness. So what's interesting to me is not to find a, a, a sort of small place that's kind of in between these places that you described as like alluring and then, you know, the other side of that, but to have as part of our practice, very deep inquiry about this this question that that we've touched on today, sort of what are my actions arising on behalf of? So, uh, you know, am I, how, what's the process by which I'm moving through the world? Um, it, it, It might be, there's so much that's in the how. It could be that an, an action I take to someone else looks like X, but I know what's what kind of where this is arising from. I'm thinking of a particular um, circumstance um, uh, in my own family of origin um, where, you know, on the outside, it might look like there's a, a type of of um, of coldness uh, happening. On the inside, uh, I'm aware that there's a type of voidness happening, an unwillingness to step inside a drama that is a conditioned family of origin drama that's been going on for my entire existence. Does that does that connect for you as an example? Yes, very much. I'm just trying to like bring this home because it can sound kind of lofty, but I think the main points are it's not what it's how and what are our actions arising on behalf of? Because if we're committed to my actions are arising on behalf of my direct experience of who I authentically am, I'll hold myself accountable to that and others, but that accountability happens through the vehicle of love. It doesn't happen through the vehicle of separation and othering. Mm. So how would you define, because um, sometimes these terms are used in a Buddhist context, you know, it depends on who's doing the talking in the spiritual space, but you you speak in this book about unity, oneness, et cetera. How, how would you define the, the, that experience? Um, of of unity, oneness, et cetera? I would define the experience of oneness, unity, shared being as reality, the reality that's unchanging, the reality that's never born, never dies, the reality that appears in maybe early stages of practice as um, sort of a backdrop of experience. But the more we 
explore our direct experience of who we truly are, um, we the more we find this reality shining through everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That doesn't, it's not a feeling of like everybody in, in a collective or everybody in a sangha having to be on the same page, right? I think it's so important that you name that, Ethan. We're, we're as you know, in this book, I talk a lot about the, about oneness in quotes, the stories we have about oneness. So, oh, we're going to run around touting we're all one. Um but without deep understanding of what that actually means, we're often um, touting something that has nothing to do with how our actions are uh, manifesting. So it becomes just as we were speaking before about, it just becomes part of the noise. Mm. And, 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 on a conditioned level, on on the relative plane level, uh, a dangerous part of the noise. So here I am training in a monastery for eight years. We're all talking about how, quote unquote, we're all one. But there was never a single conversation about why I never saw a black person enter through the gates of the monastery. Not a single inquiry about what was going on with how white our practice setting was. Yeah. Is it also, I mean, what's coming up for me right now, like thinking about our experience of the collective, it's it's very aspirational, right? Like that quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, that the next Buddha will be a Sangha, right? Very kind of aspirate. That's beautiful, right? Um, but everybody's experience in, in every Dharma community I've ever been in is, ah, the Sangha is kind of disappointing, you know, either because it's, it, you know, it, it fails, you know, uh, at sort of um, any kind of DEI or inclusivity, you know, uh, measure or it's like, or the, you know, uh, the Shambhala Sangha was disappointing to me, you know, when I was, you know, 20, because I was one of the only, everybody was at least 20 years older than me, you know. Um, so, or, you know, sanghas are disappointing because um, you think you're all on the same page and then you realize, wait, we disagree, you know, about something. And so it's interesting, like, when when that sense of collective experience becomes kind of disappointing, you know, or when you're, I mean, the same way family becomes disappointing is like, yes, oh, yes. I can't stand these people. <laughs> yes, yes. Ethan, I, I again, I, I I just love being in conversation with you because uh, there's such um, connection on so many different levels. This sangha, to me, we're in a time where what it seems to me that what's required of us is for sangha to be, to first and foremost have a commitment, even if it's just your own commitment within a sangha, to seeing the heart of who others are and relating to others through that experience of who we authentically are. So the way we talk about it in our Peace and Schools program is meeting each other essence to essence. Mm -hmm. So when I, whether it's in a difficult family of origin moment, uh, whether it's um, in a context of Sangha, when I'm not 
confused about ultimate truth, absolute reality, however, however whatever frame you want to give um, the heart of who we are, um, then the disturbances that happen on the relative plane become less disturbing to us. We see it as just waves, like choppy waves on top of a very deep sea. And we have the opportunity to not be confused. That's the totality of experience. So rather than having this ideal of Sangha that is without ripple, we, I think through practice, build our capacity to have ripple be an important part of the totality rather than something we resist. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it's interesting because that's that's very hard, right? The, you, Absolutely. You know, That's why I put the word practice in that sentence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's also like, where does this leave us? And as teachers, I'm also thinking like when you think about building um, successful, you know, Dharma or yoga sanghas, they're usually built around uh, teachers, you know, and then uh, as happened in Shambhala, and then there's not as much investment in each other. You know, so you're sort of, um, you know, I, I, you know, the the uh, the the guru, and then there's the political guru cult. I don't think we've ever had a politician who people were willing to wave flags of before, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Trump. You know, and it's like yeah. sort of so. So I always want to be like, so what is y'all's relationship to each other? Like, what right. what would you do if you didn't have Trump and you didn't like? Mm-hmm. How would you talk to each other? I mean, you probably find something based on shared fears or you know um, shared sure. values, perhaps. There's some there's some form of conditioned membership happening there, right? Yeah, even and that's true in in more progressive and you know that I mean mm-hmm. we didn't have a I don't think anybody would ever wave an Obama flag, but we did have those Shepherd Fairy posters, mm-hmm. you know. So so what's the how do you get people to hang in with that sort of those ripples and those disappointments and those kind of, if not disunities, then discords where, where you're just like, I don't, I don't know that I want to see myself and I'd rather isolate. I'd rather, yeah, yeah. you know, go you know, back into my I, bubble. Yeah. I think we're in a time in which what's required of us is to prioritize liberation above all else. And this is one of the reasons in the book it felt so important to me to talk about collective liberation in the way that's mine to talk about, you know, coming in from the position that I'm coming in from. You know, I'm I'm not talking about um, some sort of like isolated, separate, personal liberation, which is how it's kind of gotten distorted in our societal structure. Uh, if I care about liberation above all else, then I care to notice what's what's binding me, what's 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 creating distortion as I attempt to be in wholesome relationship with others. It, it's I it's it becomes imperative for my own liberation and then therefore 
the relationship within the Sangha and we can keep rippling out to talk about larger and larger collective experiences, it, it becomes so critical for us to, if we're prioritizing liberation, I'll say it this way, if we're prioritizing liberation, it becomes critical for us to see everything that gets in the way of that with clear eyes. And this is one of the reasons I love Zen so much. There's so much focus on discernment, clear, mm. clear capacity for discrimination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, w- one thing I noticed about the heart of who we are um, about this book is um, that, you know, there's there's a lot of Dharma books that have contemplations, exercises, practices, you know, in the appendix or at the end of each chapter, as yours does. You really focused on um, framing the contemplations as group contemplations. It, it seems like it's really your hope is that people will read this, you know, in in groups, you know, and that's um, so I guess. Yeah, what's you know, this is another maybe this is a good like closing conversation because this question also of like how do I find my Sangha, especially during and post pandemic kind of has gone to new levels. It's people's biggest question for me as a teacher, you know, for a a wide variety of reasons, but one is that so much of our lives happen online now. So um, what, what do you envision for like a a group of people reading this book and working with the, the practices in it? Do you, do you envision it as like a Sangha wide thing? Did you, did you want to create like, Sometimes when I teach, we use the quad model, which is there's kind of a micro sangha of four people who mm-hmm. hold each other accountable for practice. Like what 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 do you see as that the the sort of workable group of collective kind of working with contemplations in a manageable way together? Yeah, practice? thank you. I do. It, you're you're pointing to something important, which is is my 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 love of sangha with all the ripples, with all the trouble, with with the, all the problematic things that arise. Um, my my love of Sangha, and, and we didn't talk about this yet, but I want to just name that part of that love is the recognition of what I think is a dying model, which is you know, the white guy at the front of the room that has all the answers. You know, we're 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 tired of uh of of a model that actually creates a, it feeds a distortion of of guru it feeds a distort the and 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 I'm not, I, we're not going to go today based on time into the healthy forms of guru right healthy relationships of of guru because I don't want to just write off guru but I'm speaking to the c- condition limitations around something like guru and the power of well to use the tagline of the book realizing freedom together being in in community that falls down, gets back up, comes back together again and again. So a couple exciting things about what you're what you're asking about. Um, one is that I I do have an excitement around the way in which this book was written for collective experience. And in fact, it was really only my editor that said, you need to tweak it some because you're going to get so many people that want permission to just read it 
completely on their own, never talk to anyone else about it. And that, so, that is the way most people read books. Yeah, exactly. So I really, now the book has lots of places where it says, and if you're reading on it on your own, that's fine. And I think there's wisdom in that. If you're but, reading it on your own, that's fine, loser. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, you know, if you can't, if you can't step up the game, <laughs> no, it's, it's, I actually, um, I'm thinking of a beloved um, friend who would never want to like join some kind of community experience around this book. And yet I know he's going to get a lot out of this book. And so I really do mean it that that's, that's great. And I'm excited to see what happens within these collective contexts that I, that I hope to be able to participate in a sparking of Rashid Hughes. Do you know Rashid? I know of Rashid. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely friend. Um, fellow board member in uh, through Presence Collective. And uh, Rashid and I will be offering a collective experience around this book in which we focus on a different chapter each month. And that'll start at the beginning of 2023. We're just in the first stages of um, fleshing out what that will look like. But I'm excited about it because, uh, you know, he's a um, he identifies as male. He's black. He's um, coming through a different practice lens than I first came through. And yet the heart of what we're both committed to is is quite, quite shared, specifically our, our experiences around non-dual, non-dual teachings, non-duality. And um, yeah, so I, as a white woman, am looking forward to sharing space with him and uh, as you point to creating space for community to explore the tools of this book in a in a shared in a shared way, and and it, um, I want to acknowledge Ethan. One of the reasons I'm I'm passionate about this is because that's what Peace and Schools has done. It's created context for shared practice that's not Buddhist shared practice. It's it's conscious community. And so my hope is that people from coming in through all different doorways can find ways to work with the the contemplative technologies offered in this book and be in relationship with each other uh, around that. Because I've seen an entire class of high school students shift in in relationship to who they are and how they're relating to others and to the world at large um, because of their shared practice over the course of a full semester. Um, yeah. And if anyone wants to hear more, we, uh, my, my first podcast with Caverly, uh, she talked much more about peace in schools. Um, so you can, uh, go into the archives and listen to that one. I forget what number, uh, episode it is offhand, but, um, I just wanted to maybe close our conversation. You got a lot of really good, uh, blurbs for this book and, uh, I'll just read the one since it's it's very, very on point and positive uh, that Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of groundbreaking, groundbreaking psychological work with the teachings of self-compassion, um, gave to you. She said, this book is a masterpiece. It offers the reader a deep understanding of non-duality in accessible and tangible ways, illustrates how to apply this understanding to social justice and cultural change. And it's one of the most personally impactful books I've read in a long time. So if any, I know some people who listen to me are probably fans of Kristen Neff as well. So she calls this book a masterpiece. So 
And I also think it's a really, really useful, I told Caverly, I usually like to read as much of the book as I can, because uh, I'm in the process of moving. Uh, I'm only got to read a little less than half the book. So but I really, really appreciated uh, what I read and really love that it is set up um, with this um, symphony between the personal and the collective, the, the relative and the absolute, and and really is set up to have group practice and group contemplations be be at the forefront, even if you have to sometimes be an introverted loner like me and and read it by yourself. Um, so um, and it's the heart of who we are. I'm just going to say that one more time so folks can remember. So Caverly Morgan, um, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the Road Home podcast. And uh, uh, yeah, we're uh, I, I, I hope we're living in an OK space when this comes out. I hope everything is well there in Portland because we'll, uh, we're recording this before the election. It'll come out after the election. So um We'll see. We'll see what life feels it's like. It's important then. to acknowledge that, isn't it? It's like our entire world on the relative plane could be quite different by yeah. November 29th when this comes out. Right. Yes. But, okay. But yeah, thank you. Ethan, thank you so much. And like I said, um, for me, it's it's just joyous to feel our connection points um, regarding our practices, you know, our shared desire to to not shy away from things on the relative plane. And you've done such, you've illustrated such commitment um, to, to that endeavor and to, to being, um, you know, somewhat fearless. You know, we, we live in a culture that it can be kind of scary to just keep putting out there. Um, no, this too is wholesome practice. And here's how we're here's how we're going to frame it and talk about it. And yes, I'm going to get pushed back and, and, and I, I, I embrace that, too. Thank you for modeling that. Thanks so much, Kevrily. Um, okay. Um, well, for the Road Home podcast, this is um, Ethan Nickturn. And uh, thank you all for listening. And see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.